Okay. I was thinking with two talks, I'll give one for about maybe 35, 40 minutes. I want to leave plenty of time for discussion and then maybe take a little break and then we can do the second one and have a talk. Would that work? Will that work for everyone? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Um, <clears throat> I'm also profoundly grateful for your prayer time and you, brother, for your leading. That was remarkably, remarkably powerful. Um, you all here are um, involved in gospel ministry, and I'm going to speak uh, briefly today, and you do have outlines, I believe, in front of you. I'm actually going to sort of truncate each of these talks because I want to leave sufficient time for discussion, but the full version of the talk, I'll be happy to email to Andrea, so if she wants to get it to any one of you, that's, that's fine. Of course, I'll deviate a little from the text, and, but you can have these and free to use them in any way that you want. Um, so I'm going to speak first, uh, just briefly, on this topic, reclaiming culture is gospel ministry. And I'm suggesting that what you here at Christian Concern are involved in is the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not a subsidiary of the gospel, not an application of the gospel, but the gospel. Now, we Christians are gospel people. What does gospel mean, the Gileon, It's the good news. Well, what's the good news? What is the good news? It's generally identified as the salvation offered to sinful humanity on the basis of our Lord's death and resurrection. By simple faith, we trust in Him and we're rescued from God's righteous judgment that each of us faces due to our sin. And then the Spirit works within us to gradually purge the corruption of our sinful nature. That is the good news. God gets rid of both the guilt of our sin and the corruption of our sin because of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Now, this common evangelical description is correct as far as it goes. But it doesn't go far enough. And the fact that it doesn't go far enough has momentous implications for the Christian cultural obligation and for the gospel itself. Now, I could spend a long time proving this point from the Bible, but I'm just going to mention essentially one text and maybe refer to a couple of others. In the full talk, you'll see more. We might first consider the gospel disclosed in the Old Testament. Did you know that the gospel is set forth in the Old Testament, not just the New Testament? A prime example is Isaiah, the great gospel prophet, chapter 52, which Paul the Apostle himself excerpts in Romans 10, 15. He says this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Good news? What is the good news? The gospel. Isaiah is encouraging the oppressed Jews of that one day God will bring the full-fledged gospel to them. That gospel is the message of deliverance, deliverance by their king. Here's verse 10 of Isaiah 52, and here's where you hear, remember the gospel. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The gospel is both a joyful emancipation of God's people. Yes, it is that as well as a graphic, public display of the power of the Almighty God. 
The gospel is the message that Jehovah is the king and that he will flex his regal muscles so that all the world can see his greatness. In Ephesians 1, Paul says much the same thing. God has redeemed his people by Jesus' bloodshedding. He says in verse 7 of Ephesians 1, it was preached to them in the gospel, he says in verse 13. You can read it fully later. And God has exalted this risen Messiah, and he'll vanquish all powers in heaven and earth over which he rules. That's how Paul concludes that chapter, Ephesians 1, verses 19 through 23. Now, we have to be careful not to evade the full force of Paul's statements. Jesus didn't only pay our sin debt on the cross. He didn't only suffer the punishment for our law-breaking. That he did. In addition, he nailed the power of sin to the cross. He overcame the diabolical powers that plunged the earth into depravity. Now, we immediately think of when that depravity first entered human society, the Garden of Eden. Satan seduced Eve into acting autonomously. And what is the root of sin? What is the root of sin but autonomy? Relying entirely on our own devices and neglecting God. That is how humanity fell into sin. And it's this sin and all of its hideousness that the gospel is calculated to crush. But we won't really understand the significance of the gospel if we don't grasp the significance of the fall. And we won't grasp the significance of the fall until we understand the significance of creation. And I want to park here for just a moment. The gospel doesn't start with the cross or the resurrection, even though those are its high points. The gospel starts with the creation and the fall. Now, there's much to consider here, but I'm going to just briefly mention two points. First, at the conclusion of each creation day, God declared, as recorded in Genesis 1, that his work was good. At the end of the sixth day, he pronounced that everything he made was, do you know, very good. Creation is inherently good. Now, what does this truth have to do with the gospel? Simply this. The created universe isn't man's problem. Creation isn't sinful. Yes, it's presently under sin's curse, but it's not of itself sinful. Creation is not a drag on man. It's not something he needs to morally overcome. A lot of evangelicals seem not to understand that. Why is this point important to make, then, in discussing the gospel? Well, likely the earliest heresy in the Christian church was Gnosticism. Have you all heard of this ancient heresy? This heresy included the popular idea that the material universe, including the body, man's body, is a, is a prison, and that salvation is the escape from this corporeal, fleshly prison. Materiality is evil, or at least it's undesirable. Now, in its most crass form, some people believe that the God of the material world is evil and the God of the spiritual, that is to say the non-material world, is good. Salvation, then, is salvation from creation, the material creation. The fall is redefined as the fall from spirit into matter. Now, what I just told you in the last couple of minutes, that's heresy. It's not Christian. <coughs> In philosophical terms, it understands the fall as metaphysical, not ethical. In other words, it sees the source of the great problems of the world in the corporeality of creation and not in the heart of man. 
Now, of course, that's certainly a convenient argument, isn't it? The Bible teaches there's nothing inherently wrong about creation, though there's plenty wrong with the post-fall heart of man. God did curse creation for man's sake, but creation is not of itself sinful. It bears the marks of sin's pollution, but creation's not the problem. The gospel doesn't save us from creation. Now, this fact dictates an important implication for the gospel. If creation didn't cause the fall, getting rid of creation won't get rid of the effects of the fall. Moreover, since God's work in Jesus Christ on the cross is designed to redeem everything presently plagued by sin, and since that does include creation, creation should be redeemed. And this includes all elements of culture, which is man's interactive interaction with creation. That includes redeeming money and food and technology and politics and education and law and architecture and the arts. Everything presently burdened under the weight of sin is designed to be redeemed. Everything. Salvation isn't liberation from creation or from culture. Sin must be purged from creation and culture. The gospel's calculated to redeem not just individuals, but all of human life and culture and creation. But if we think that creation is the problem, we think we can get rid of man's problem by getting rid of creation. But that's wrong. Creation must be redeemed, not avoided. And the same is true of culture. Which leads me to a second point. Man's primary earthly calling is to exercise dominion or stewardship over God's non-human creation. All of it, according to Genesis 1, 26 to 28. This commission is often called, and if you know the, the Dutch Christian theologians, Herman Kuyper, uh, I mean Abraham Kuyper and Herman Doeveerd and uh, Bavink, uh, it's called the cultural mandate. Now, interestingly, God decided not to directly oversee and steward this entire creation. He gave that responsibility of stewarding the creation to whom? To man, to humanity. In other words, man is God's deputy in the world. Man is God's deputy in the world. Now, this cultural mandate, in fact, I would suggest, is the plot of the Bible, and redemption is the subplot. Now, if that statement sounds strange to us as evangelicals, it's probably because we've not yet learned to read the Bible as a worldview book. We see in the Bible principally a message of how we can trust Jesus and live a God-honoring life, and get to heaven when we die. But God didn't create the world simply to take people to heaven. If so, he's doing a very bad job of that, because you become a Christian and you stay here, most of us, a good long time. He created the world to glorify him, and man most glorifies God when he acts as God's deputy, cultivating the rest of creation for God's glory. This means that redemption is not an end, Redemption is not the end. Redemption is the means to an end. To restore man to his exalted pre-fall calling. It's not surprising, therefore, when we read in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 of the great heavenly beings worshiping the thrice holy God and the slain but resurrected lamb. And as a consequence, we read of the redeemed people who will rule on the earth in the Lord's name in Revelation chapter 5. Redemption has a purpose and that purpose is restored dominion. Redemption restores man to his place as a godly culture maker. 
Now the fall. Man acts on God's creation and produces culture. God's design is that godly people produce godly, God-honoring culture. But the fall introduced a perversion of this cultural mandate. Because of sin, sinful people now produce culture. Unbelievers in the post-fall world fulfill the cultural mandate no less than believers do. We had a wonderful prayer time a few minutes ago when we were praying about a dear man, a street preacher, who has been arrested, or at least there are charges against him, and other issues. The problem is we have all of these unbelievers out there, and they too are fulfilling the cultural mandate. But are they fulfilling it in a godly way? No. That constitutes the great conflict in our world. Two kinds of people with two very different spiritual natures and fundamentally conflicting convictions, both shaping the world, intentionally or not. Each of us, believer and unbeliever, approaches all cultural tasks, education, politics, medicine, science, the arts, music, architecture, technology, movie making, all cultural activity in two distinctively different ways. This is the root of our struggle, your struggle at Christian Concern, mine at Center for Cultural Leadership. This is the root of our struggle against the new paganism, against abortion, against pornography, against socialism, against same-sex marriage, against judicial tyranny, against Islam, against radical feminism, and much, much more. That's the root of it right there, this fundamental conflict. Two cultural, one cultural mandate, but two kinds of people at war with one another. In short, sin doesn't eliminate the cultural mandate, but it only perverts it. The urge to dominion is woven into man's very nature. God made humans to be dominion creatures. Man is a cultural cr- culture creator. You give man wooden sticks and animal skin and he'll soon make a drum and rhythm. You give him pigment and hair and a flat surface and he'll make brushes and painting. Give him sharp metal and trees and he'll make a cabin. Allow him to develop sophisticated tools and technology and he'll make an iPhone a four-movement symphony, and a thermonuclear warhead. Man is a cultural creature. God made him that way. But when man sinned, he perverted this gift of culture into a tool for his own God-defying independence, which is to say unbelievers are anti-God dominionists. Now, does the fall mean that God abandoned the cultural mandate for the godly? Well, by no means. You know that if you've read the Bible. In Genesis 9, 1 through 4, after the flood, God restated to Noah this mandate given in Eden by which he originally commissioned Adam and Eve. Sin did, however, introduce two modifications. One, first, because of sin, man would suffer from the hardships posed by creation under the curse. Man's work would be tiresome. Woman's childbearing would be painful. Thus, the cultural mandate would be harder work than if sin had never occurred. Second, For the cultural mandate to be what God intended, man would have to be redeemed and cleansed from sin. Now, the first implicit act of atonement in the Bible was when God made skins to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. He had to shed an animal's blood. God himself had to shed an animal's blood to do this. Fig leaves won't suffice to cover shame. Only the product of bloodshedding would do that. This act pointed to the one final an enduring sacrifice of Jesus Christ, whose 
blood shedding on the cross can alone take away the guilt and corruption of sin. Now, when sinful man is redeemed, he's restored to his original place as God's deputy of creation. You see, that's what salvation does. It restores man to his original place as God's deputy. And this is why God recommissioned, reissued rather, his commission to Noah and his descendants. God didn't abandon his cultural plan for the earth. He reissued it to a newly redeemed people. This is our calling as God's people, washed in the Lord's blood. We are his dominion people, our Lord's new humanity. And this, to put it bluntly, is the goal of the gospel. This is the gospel. Not simply to take people to heaven when they die, though it'll be there when we get there. The Great Commission, therefore, the command to preach the gospel and disciple the nations, is actually the, commin- uh, the cultural mandate adapted to the post-fall world. If you're taking notes, you may want to write that down because that is quite important. The command to preach the gospel and disciple the nations is actually the cultural mandate adapted to the post-fall world. God's plan for man has not changed. Obedient creatures made in his image, cultivating his world for his glory. Properly fulfilled, the cultural mandate, the Great Commission, the gospel, means that Christians self-consciously create a culture in harmony with God's will revealed in his word. There's a wonderful quote by H. Henry Meter. It's very powerful. So God-glorifying. Listen to it. Culture, he writes, is the execution of of this divinely imposed mandate. He means the cultural mandate. In his cultural task, man is to take the raw materials of this universe and subdue them, make them serve his purpose, and bring them to nobler and higher levels, thus bringing out the possibilities which are hidden in nature. When thus developed, man is to lay his entire cultural product, the whole of creation, at the feet of him who is king of man and of nature, in whose image man and all things are created. Wasn't that a beautiful metaphor? That man is restored to this place of cultural dominion and is to work wherever he places us, at at Christian concern, whether we're in medicine or in the arts or in medicine, I mean in architecture or in education, or in politics, and to work under the authority of the Word of God, little by little, and to bring glory to God. And at the very end, at the end of time, mankind is itself, those who are redeemed, will take this entire product and place it at the feet of our King of kings and Lord of lords. That is man's calling, you see. This means the gospel is not simply about, and has never been about, and never will be about merely individual deliverance. Jesus dying and rising so that he can take us to heaven when we die. That is a significant part of the gospel, but it's not the gospel itself. Simply put, the gospel, the good news, is that God in Jesus Christ has dealt and is dealing decisively with the problem of sin and gradually reinstalling his righteousness in the earth. That really is the gospel. God is reinstalling his righteousness in the earth. And that's why we're called to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his rightness in the earth. That, you see, is the gospel. The gospel is that everything wrong in this world, 
God is setting right. And he's using his people to set it right. Of course, his prime instrument for a righteous world is the redemptive work of his son by the power of the Holy Spirit. But his secondary instrument is godly redeemed people, his ambassadors, imploring sinners to turn from their ways and give their hearts to the triune God. And in so doing, be restored to their exalted place that God gave them as his dominion creatures. That, quite simply, is the gospel. In the words of the theologian Cornelius Van Til, the sweep of redemption is as comprehensive as the sweep of sin. The sweep of redemption is as comprehensive as the sweep of sin. Paul writes in Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. But where does sin increase? Not just in the human heart. It begins in the human heart, but it moves outward to culture, to art, to education, to science, to music, to architecture, to technology, to economics, to politics. The gospel is about incrementally getting rid of sin, including cultural sin, because each of these spheres and all others have been corrupted by sin. Henry Van Til writes, to confess Christ as Savior from sin, but to deny his relevance and power in the realm of culture is a denial of his kingship over the believer and over the world. This is why the task of redeeming culture is itself gospel ministry. It's the proper goal of every gospel sermon. Now, earlier I said that the gospel is commonly understood as incomplete, and I'd like, as I conclude, to explore that point. In particular, I'd like to show how a shrunken gospel shrinks, shrinks gospel ministry, how we need to recover a robust gospel and a robust ministry. I'm going to think, for the sake of time, skip over the point on the unevangelized mind and go right to the spiritual caste system as a particular example of what I'd like to call a shrunken gospel in the contemporary church, a shrunken gospel. Uh, spiritual caste system, what do I mean by that? Well, one of the main criticisms the reformers leveled at the Roman Catholic Church was its dualistic scheme of spirituality. The truly spiritual ones were the priests and others in church leadership. The ecclesial hierarchy, we would say. Monks, nuns, those sequestered from ordinary life, and of course, after death, especially the saints, who were super-exalted Christians. The reformers, Protestant reformers, didn't consider this caste system to be biblical. It introduced artificial distinctions into the Christian church. It created a dualistic spirituality. The priesthood was called to be entirely committed to God, but the laity could live a life of mediocre commitment as long as they came to confession and mass. Now, the reformers knew that Rome on this point got it all wrong. Every Christian should be a committed Christian. Every Christian. The only difference between church leadership and the laity is over giftedness, not over a qualitative level of spirituality. Now, this meant that vocation itself could be and should be holy. The office of priest or the calling of a monk or a nun was not a higher or more spiritual calling than a jewelry peddler or a shoe cobbler. Now, this has been called the Protestant sanctification of vocation. 
It's a lovely term. Sanctification of vocation. And it had a profound effect on Protestant culture. It meant that the shoe cobbler or the wool merchant could look on his or her work as distinctively Christian. It wasn't simply that the culture itself is Christian. It means also every person's calling within that culture should be Christian. Every person's calling. It was, in effect, the Christianization of all of life, the gospelization of all of life. Now, this sanctification of vocation is essential to a truly consistent Christian gospel. Unfortunately, evangelicals in the West, both in the United States, Britain, and I'm sure elsewhere, have developed their own version of the sort of spiritual caste system, spiritual dualism. How do we describe it? Well, they've tended to exalt the work of the pastorate and the missionaries and Christian day school teachers as somehow the Lord's work. If you ask them what they do for a living, say, well, I am in the Lord's work. And what do you do? Well, I sell automobiles. Oh, well, that's sad because I am in the Lord's work. Everything else you see being acceptable but secondary. If you really wish to serve the Lord without qualification, you have to sort of surrender your life. Surrender your life to the ministry. I've always found it odd that no one ever speaks of surrendering their life to writing computer code or selling or repairing automobiles or piloting commercial aircraft or making millions of dollars in the stock market. But in biblical terms... If and whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all to the Lord's glory. If God has called us to one of these vocations or another outside full-time ministry, we surrender our life to that vocation. To the extent that we faithfully serve God in that vocation in terms of God's work, that is our highest possible calling. We might talk of full-time gospel ministry, but we need to realize that the Christian physician and the ticket agent and software engineer and barista and auto mechanic, to the extent that they are faithful to this globally redemptive message, they too are just as much gospel ministers as the pastor, Sunday school teacher, and missionary. There's a final problem in shrinking the gospel and gospel ministry. There's the challenge of what I'd like to term embassy roof Christianity. And I'm employing a metaphor more suited to ones that citizens in the U.S. would understand, though all of you are quite aware of it. You've seen photos or video of the United States evacuation of our embassy in Vietnam in 1975 as the Viet Cong overran South Vietnam. It was a great disgrace and embarrassment to our country In effect, we basically lost our first war. It wasn't a declared war, but of course it was, in effect, a war. Diplomats and soldiers and civilians squeezing into helicopters on the embassy roof, even dangling underneath its skids. But it really is a suitable metaphor for how many Christians today see the church in relation to culture. The church is God's embassy in an increasingly hostile culture that it can never hope to recapture for Christ the King. Best we can hope for is to win over a few of the locals to our otherworldly gospel. And I can tell you this much. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not an otherworldly gospel. 
It comes from another world, but it is not an otherworldly gospel. It's very much about this world, very much. As time goes on, these folks believe, though, the embassy roof Christians, I'd like to call them, even that influence of Christ in the world will increasingly wane. And in the end, like Saigon's U.S. Embassy in 1975, we'll be forced to dispatch diplomatic buses to collect all of our citizens and their friends for the final evacuation. And from the embassy rooftops, the divine helicopters will rescue the faithful and take them to the safety of God's heavenly aircraft carrier. This is sometimes called the pre-tribulational rapture or thought to be coincident with the second coming. Yes, my metaphor might be slightly too dramatic, but I don't believe it's an inaccurate metaphor for what many Christians believe. Now, this embassy roof Christianity is very strange because most who hold it also champion the Great Commission, at least in theory. Our calling is to get the gospel to people and baptize people and, as it says plainly in the Greek, disciple the nations, not just individuals, but make disciples of entire nations. But it's not clear how they reconcile the Great Commission with their embassy roof Christianity. How do you reconcile those two? The Great Commission is robust. It's outward-looking. It's gospel-disseminating. It's culture-redeeming. Embassy roof Christianity, on the other hand, is insular. It's inward-looking. It's gospel-shrinking. It's culture-rejecting. If, as I've suggested, the Great Commission is the cultural mandate adapted to the post-fall world, embassy roof Christianity simply isn't compatible with the gospel. Gospel ministry, as you might imagine, is conceived very differently in these two viewpoints. Embassy roof ministry gets a few souls saved and into the church. It teaches them rightly to live a life of surrender to the Lord. Prayer, which is essential and we need to do much more of and more fervently. Bible reading, which we need to do much more of. Personal evangelism, yes, and resisting temptation and rearing a godly family. But at best, they would say, expanding the church. But even in its church expansion goals, it always conceives itself as fighting a defensive battle. It can't expect any great revival or reformation in society. It can't expect any culture transforming gospel victories. In fact, they believe the church itself will be destined to lose its effectiveness as apostasy engulfs the culture. They would say it's almost predestined that the church fail, which really is a perverse idea if you think about it. Ministry, according to this view, is intensive, sanctifying Christians, but not extensive, expanding Christianity. They're preparing the faithful for that rooftop helicopter operation. But I'm here to tell you, my friends at Christian Concern, Great Commission ministry is very different. Great Commission ministry plans for victory. It plans to reverse the enemy's advance. It plans to retake the territory presently under satanic control. It takes God's gospel promises very seriously. And if we do not take God's gospel promises very seriously, we are guilty of the grievous sin of unbelief. Make no mistake, Great Commission ministers know that we'll suffer satanic assaults. We will suffer setbacks. Our task won't be easy, just as Jesus Christ's task 
was not easy. But we are buoyed by the confidence that our Lord's kingdom in human history will gradually overwhelm Satan and sin in all areas of life and thought, not just in the future age, though it fully will happen then only, but also to a large degree in our present age. For this reason, great commission ministers pray for power to cast down satanic strongholds and all that exalts itself against Jesus Christ. We address all areas of life, education, politics, law, music, architecture, technology, science, art, theater, cinema, every area of life presently corrupted by sin. We encourage Christians to influence society by God's law for divine truth. Wherever God's placed us, wherever, whatever we're doing, whether we're selling automobiles or writing code or teaching children or designing or painting houses or making coffee or leading an international corporation, wherever sin increased, wherever, grace is to increase all the more. You can see how different ministry looks when practiced by Great Commission Christianity than by Embassy Roof Christianity. Both want to honor Jesus' redemptive work but they have significantly different ideas about how that work looks and what its expectations are. Full-fledged gospel ministry is one of cultural engagement and conquest, not of abandonment and defeat. In conclusion, you at Christian Concern aren't somehow doing something in addition to or subordinate to the gospel by helping Islamic converts to Christianity in your ministry safe haven, or by training young culture warriors at the Wilberforce Academy, or by inspiring churches to take up the challenge of cultural engagement for Christ the King in your Awake Arise campaign. These aren't merely implications of the gospel. They are the gospel, and you are gospel ministers. Now, stop there. Please take time now for any questions you might have, and then we'll take a break, and we'll... Start on the second one. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Uh, that was really helpful. I have actually got about seven questions, but I won't, <laughs> I won't try them all. Um, just what you're saying at the end there uh, reminded me of uh, the debate that's roughly happening that uh, don't we give the wrong signals to these PSIC churches mm-hmm. uh, in this country? And one thing that he, I think he said it during the debate, or he might have said it. The question is, how is it possible to believe that the gospel itself, as it goes out, can be significantly effective, but nonetheless not really impact culture in any significant way? And uh, we're talking about what some people call optimistic amillennialism. I think the air there is in, and if you think about it, it really is a, a twisted way of thinking, that one can become a Christian and become a devout Christian without impacting those people and situations around him. But biblically, it seems to me that whenever people become Christians, even a few of them, they start 
if they're the right kind of Christians, if they're properly taught, if they have the power of the Spirit, to impact those around them. If it's even if it's in a small way, if they're at work, if there's a Christian business, a, a businessman or a woman starts a Christian business, and yes, they will fail, but they will tend to operate their business, of course, according to Christian biblical principles. If that's true on a small scale, how is it possible that there would be massive conversions, a large number of conversions, and there would be great success? And let's say one of your, we call them politicians, you would be one of your ministers, right? A minister, a politician, one of your PMs, or, or I guess they're not that. What would you call them? Congress here, it's parliament, right? Members of, how is it possible that they could be consistent Christians and not allow their Christianity, for example, to affect their political decisions, or as the case may be in art, the art that they produce, or in law, or whatever. So it seems to me what that position that you're describing really is arguing for is a form of um, converted Christianity that's not really an effectual Christianity. And to me, I think that's really a contradiction of terms. 